It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, August 11th, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson coming to you live from New York City, capital of the world, headquarters of Fox News. Very happy to be here. Very happy to have you along with me. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday and online at GuyBensonShow.com. We recommend the free podcast every day should you miss any of the live program. Part of the reason that I'm here in New York, really the main reason, is I'm filling in for Kennedy tonight and tomorrow. Fox Business Network, 8 p.m. Eastern, so you can set your DVRs or tune in on TV. But we've got you covered on the radio here. No changes to our programming. I just happen to be in New York, which is exciting because you can actually do some more face-to-face interviews with some of our Team Fox family. And here's what we've got today. Douglas Holtz-Aiken, former CBO director, he will join me later this hour to break down this astounding budget resolution that passed, or at least advanced, last night in the Senate. $3.5 trillion. It could get scored as a lot more expensive than that. There are moderates pushing back in the Democratic Party saying we can't do anything close to this. There's a fight brewing. And Douglas Holtz-Aiken knows all the intricacies. So we will talk to him again in a few segments. Coming up in the next hour, Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, will join us by phone. A lot going on in his state. I want to ask him about his decision-making process on big issues like Masks in schools, for example, a topic that we're going to touch on here in just a moment. Looking forward to visiting with Governor Kemp again. Later in the program, Martha McCallum will be here in studio. She's on the story right now on Fox News Channel. She'll join us right here at the bottom half of the next hour. And then our friend Kat Timpf, another Fox friend, will be here in our final hour at the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. That's the 5 p.m. Eastern time hour. Let's get started with a Fox News alert. We'll bring you the stats. Coronavirus cases in the United States confirmed now 36.1 million all time. The real number is much bigger. We are in the middle of this Delta wave that is really hitting a lot of states hard right now. The death toll has climbed to 618,363 here in the United States. The Dow right now is up 218 points. Currently at 35,483. So I would like to begin the program today picking up on a conversation that we started yesterday. Not really started. We've been touching on it here and there for quite some time. But we really drilled down a bit yesterday with Dr. McCary, which is the issue of schools reopening. And in some places that's happening now. Like here in the Northeast where I went to middle school and high school, we didn't start the school year till after Labor Day. You've got some parts in the country where the school year is beginning this week, next week. It looks like we're going to avoid a repeat of the absolutely catastrophic, harmful, anti-science disaster of last year, where a lot of schools were just closed 
for all or most of the school year. There was no excuse for that. There was no science behind it. That inflicted a lot of emotional, physical, developmental, educational harm on millions of mostly public school kids in mostly blue states. And the evidence is so clear that that was a mistake. It looks like in all probability, it's not going to happen again. Knock on wood, we hope. There are some who might be willing to go that path again, but I think most people are not. So then a second question becomes, okay, if the schools are going to be open, what is the best way to make sure that kids are having a safe and healthy experience in those schools? And the CDC has decided that their recommendation is everyone should be masked in schools, including kids, including the children. Now, we know that schools were extremely safe. We actually know that kids were safer from the virus in schools last year than they were out in the community, which was another piece of evidence behind the folly and illustrating the folly of remote learning in closed schools. We've talked about other countries and the example that they've set. The UK looked at their data and they have a lot of data. In some ways, their data is better than ours. They looked at their data in the UK and decided schools will be open, no masks. And that's been their status quo, and it has worked. There has not been anything close to a huge, disastrous outbreak and hospitalizations and deaths among children, even as they've gone through the teeth of their Delta wave, which is what we're now experiencing here. Their cases have crashed over there. They've come way down, although there's some indication they might be headed back up. I mean, this is just a roller coaster all around the world. But the UK looked at their data, decided it would be safe to have kids in schools without masks, planned accordingly, moved forward with that policy, and it worked. But the CDC has come to a different conclusion. Why? The truth of the matter is we don't really have good data here in the United States behind the recommendation of universal masking. I have a long piece and an analysis today at townhall.com. I don't have the time in my opening monologue to walk you through every piece of it. But I spent a lot of time reading and researching, and I tried to bring a fair, balanced perspective. And my bottom line is this. There's not great evidence, right? If you're going to say every child has to wear a mask in school, you better have good evidence to back it up. And they don't really have that. There is some evidence and some data that points in the opposite direction. There is some data from last year, a whole school year, that shows that schools without masks did just as well, if not better in some cases, than schools with masks. When you look at some of the surveys and the studies that have been done, I think some of the methodologies are very questionable, including one that was highlighted in the New York Times. There was no control group, right? So they had this whole finding about the efficacy of wearing masks in schools, but they didn't compare it to schools without masks. So I don't know what that achieves, right? You're not comparing an apple to an orange and trying to figure out which one works better. You are just looking at apples and drawing conclusions based on that with nothing having to do with the alternate Reality, the alternate course of action, the orange, if you will, in this analogy. Well, some people say the Delta variant is different. 
right? We have some data from last year, but it may not be relevant anymore because of Delta. Well, the UK data would suggest otherwise because they've been dealing with Delta. There's a doctor and a specialist. In fact, his specialty is pediatric infectious diseases in the UK. He had a whole thread on Twitter, which I've embedded in my post at townhall.com on the tip sheet, where he says the data suggests, based on everything we know, that it is not true that the Delta variant is causing more severe reactions or cases of COVID-19 in children. It's not true. Despite what he says amounts to increasing claims, quote, mainly in North American news outlets. So we're looking at American media for the most part. Right. It's just sort of taken as a fact. Oh, Delta's worse. Delta is definitely more transmissible. It is more contagious. But we do not have evidence that it is more harmful in terms of virulence including with children, and we know that children are extremely, extremely, extremely unlikely to have severe cases of COVID. Every severe case that happens, a hospitalization or a death, is horrific, especially if it involves a child. We also have to make public policy based on data and not exceptions and anecdotes, right? That's the way that we make all of our policies, or at least we should. Because if we went with anecdotes and heart-wrenching stories, you could justify those to do a lot of things like banning cars or setting the speed limit at 10 miles an hour. The list goes on banning pools because you have more kids in America who've drowned from, who've died rather from drowning than from COVID during the pandemic. Emily Oster was also looking at this. She's a professor. She has been very good at trying to put the risk assessment questions into perspective during this pandemic and she gets attacked for it but she's thorough she's empirical she's data-driven and she also has come to the conclusion that there's not a lot of great evidence in support of some of these mandates and that the delta variant based on the data is not more dangerous to children she said the risks based on the data quote are in the same range the narrative that this is a new virus that is tremendously more dangerous for children, is just simply not supported by the data. This is Professor Oster writing. She said, our most significant post-Delta data comes from the UK. This is what I was just saying. Where the positive test rate for children up to age 11 was around 2% at the height of the Delta surge. When schools were open largely without masks. And that 2% reflected transmission from all sources schools, and households. And guess what? Kids were more likely to get the disease or the virus outside of school than in school. So at the peak of their Delta wave in the UK, they had a 2% positivity rate among kids in schools in the United Kingdom where they were attending in person without masks overwhelmingly. And within that 2%, a very small number, even fewer were actually transmissions within school. And hospitalizations and deaths, the rates were not, based on the data, worse. In fact, in her analysis, and I think this is all in my piece at townhall.com, if you want to sort of check the receipts, check my work a little bit. She went through and looked at the numbers. She repeatedly emphasized the importance of adults getting vaccinated, and we will 
underscore and repeat that here, as we so often do. But she said, on average, this is here in the U.S. now, children aged zero, so infants to 17, have roughly the same hospitalization rates from COVID, including Delta, and the flu. And the flu is more deadly among children than COVID. Let me repeat that. The flu, which we deal with every year in this country, flu season, right? The flu is more deadly for children in America than COVID has been. Which is to say, not very deadly at all. It's extremely rare for a child to die of the flu. It is even more rare for a child to die of COVID. I feel like that should impact our decisions as we make public policies. Now, look, I don't think that ultimately the fight that's the most important fight in the country on this is masks in schools, right? I would rather have schools open even if kids have to wear masks. Now, there are downsides. There are kids who really get messed up wearing masks, where it really is an obstacle toward their mental health, their thriving, their ability to learn, glasses fogging up. There are developmental issues with masks in some cases, and Dr. McCary outlined some of those in our interview yesterday. You can go back and listen on the free podcast or read his piece in the Wall Street Journal. I think what they've done in Florida is more or less the right thing. And I know it's being sold a certain way by Governor DeSantis, and I think he's sort of selling it in a way where he's more pandering to conservatives. I think people on the left, including much of the media, are not accurately describing what they're doing in Florida. You would think from some of this rhetoric that Ron DeSantis has banned masks in the state of Florida. No, there is no statewide mask mandate. Just because the government does not mandate something does not mean that it's banned. Right? We should be able to process these thoughts at the same time as reasonably intelligent adults, hopefully with some basic ability to think critically. A lack of a requirement does not mean that something is banned. Local governments and, of course, businesses have flexibility on masks, and they're using that flexibility in the state of Florida. What DeSantis has done is said, school districts cannot require all students, period, to wear masks in school in the upcoming year. What they can do, and his administration has made clear, if a school district decides to encourage or require masks, they're not going to fight them on that as long as there is an affirmative opt-out option for parents. Because some kids do need an opt-out, as Dr. McCary was saying. So in Florida, if a school district decides we're going to have a mask requirement or a mask positive or a mask encouraging policy, if parents have an opt-out for their own child, that's allowed. It seems sort of like a pretty reasonable place to land, given everything that we know and what we don't know about COVID and children. But a lot of the commentary would suggest that Ron DeSantis is just killing kids and banning masks. Not true. And I wish we could have more mature conversations about how we go about this. But a lot of this feels political more than anything else, and that's what's frustrating. Okay, there's a lot to get to here. A lot on the docket here on The Guy Benson Show today. Stay tuned. We will be right back. Big show ahead. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. 
The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Back on the Guy Benson Show, glad to have you along. I saw a reporter ask Joe Biden, the president, yesterday, do you have the presidential power to intervene in states like Texas and Florida where they're banning mask mandates? And as I just explained, the Florida ban on the mask mandates is really just making sure that parents have an opt-out. Even if school districts want to require masks, if there's an opt-out, that's acceptable. That seems like a pretty positive COVID-mitigating, freedom-maximizing compromise in the midst of a complex policy situation. But again, it's framed as a ban, which I don't think is accurate. Anyway, President Biden responds saying, I don't believe that I do, i.e. have that power. But we're checking. I mean, the guy's been in government for a thousand years. He doesn't have to check. He knows that he does not have the power to overrule governors on these matters in their states. But what worries me is he also said he didn't have the power to do what he did on the eviction moratorium. Then he did it anyway to buy time, right, which under another president of another party would be called a constitutional crisis. It was largely met with a yawn and a shrug by Biden's Democratic cheerleaders in the media. When you look at what's happening in Texas and in Florida and many other states, by the way, there is a significant surge. It's not just cases. It's hospitalizations. Deaths are going up. The hospitalizations and deaths are almost exclusively, almost completely among unvaccinated people. So we can have debates about masks in schools, masks elsewhere. These are all tactical decisions social distancing, you name it. The number one thing that can be done to help the situation and to reduce the chances of someone going to the hospital or dying from COVID is to get vaccinated. That's even with the higher transmissibility of the Delta variant. Please check out my piece at townhall.com on masks in schools. I think it's hopefully illuminating. We'll take a break. Come right back. Talking budgets next. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. GuyBensonShow.com As we return to The Guy Benson Show... I am pleased to welcome Douglas Holtz-Aiken. He's the president of the American Action Forum, and he was the director of the Congressional Budget Office, the scorekeeper in Congress. And, sir, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. So the numbers that are flying in our direction are overwhelming, and I think it's hard to even put them in context. You have 
this infrastructure bill, which was bipartisan, passed the Senate uh, just a few days ago. That's $1.2 trillion, although only about half of that is new spending. Not all of that right. is paid for, according to CBO. And then, like, the next day, they had what they call a votorama in the Senate, where they voted on dozens of amendments to a budget resolution of a top line around $3.5 trillion, where the Democrats are going to try on that separate piece to ram through just an astonishing amount of spending through something called reconciliation with no Republican votes because all the Republicans are against it. Can you just from your perspective as someone who understands all the technicalities of what just happened yesterday in particular in the Senate, just lay out what happened and why it's significant? Well, let me start by just saying, you know, these are enormous numbers and we've heard so many for the past year and a half. It gets a little overwhelming. There's a big difference, though, between what is going on right now and what went on in 2020 last year. Last year, we had an economy that contracted by 10% in the second quarter. Worst year of the Great Depression was 12%. So we had an enormous downturn, and we needed a big response, and we did it. And I think that both parties should be congratulated for that. This stuff is very different. It's all discretionary. It's all things that the administration has decided to push. And as you've pointed out, the numbers are enormous. So what did we see yesterday? We saw final passage of an infrastructure bill. Uh, CBO uh, laid this out pretty clearly. They said, you know, if you do infrastructure spending and you pay for it by cutting non-investment spending, so think of transfers and entitlements or whatever your favorite is, then you can have a lasting impact on the economy that's beneficial and noticeable. If you don't pay for it, if you just layer it on deficit, you'll get a little sugar high and it'll go away. Yesterday was closer to the latter than the former, unfortunately, so I'm not overwhelmed at the economic policy that we'll get out of that. And that was the bipartisan law. That was the bipartisan yes. hard bipartisan. infrastructure bill. Yeah, that's that's the the stuff that Republicans could could get find a way to support if the pay fors were adequate. And you know, I, both sides are doomed to be disappointed in a bipartisan effort because no one gets everything they want. So that, I understand that, and you just have to decide for yourself whether you think the bill's good enough to pass or not. And that's where we ended up. Now we have the quote reconciliation bill. Reconciliation was invented back in the seventies as a fast track way for Congress to do hard things like raise taxes, cut spending, things they don't like to do. And for that reason, you can bypass the filibuster in the Senate. You can go straight to uh, a vote for passage on a simple majority, and it gets used as a result on partisan grounds to get things through without the votes of the other party. And it has and to be on now. it has to be on budget related matters, right? You couldn't. Yeah, that's the trick. So, so yesterday they passed the budget resolution, and it says you can increase the deficit over the next ten years by three point five trillion. Notice that's the net. You can spend. $8 trillion, as long as you raise $4.5 trillion in taxes, which is exactly what the Democrats plan to do. Ra- spend even more than $3.5 trillion and raise about $3 trillion in taxes. So this sets up a framework to do an enormous amount of actual policy of raising taxes. They raise the corporate rate or raise the top individual rate, raise taxes on capital gains. They have plans for all of these things. And it's okay to do it in, res- in reconciliation if and only if it is primarily budgetary in nature. And there are a lot of things that they are talking about, like legalizing uh, illegal immigrants, that are not primarily budgetary in nature and should get stripped out when, they, when it comes to final votes. Yeah, I think uh, it's almost certain that some of they can say, look, we tried, but under the rules we yeah. couldn't do it. Yeah. And so that stuff will go away. 
But what may not go away is sort of a gobsmacking amount of new spending. And with this reconciliation package, and we're really in the weeds, and I know we get into like all these specifics, and for I think a lot of average people, their eyes glaze over. But it really does matter because $3.5 trillion, this is not a single year of spending. Like, hey, here's the budget for 2022. This is what we want to spend. These are our priorities for the whole year because that's, you know, in the ballpark of $4 trillion a year. This is like a separate spending binge that would come on top of the spending track that we're already on, right? This is $3.5 trillion or more of new spending on universal pre-K. And, I mean, they have a whole – list, you know, Green New Deal stuff, this whole list of left-wing goodies that is in addition to our current spending trajectory, which is already just a wash in red ink with a massive national deficit that's only grown. Yes. So we we started out in an unsustainable fiscal situation. This set of proposals, no matter what you might hear, is not, quote, paid for. They use permanent tax increases, things that go on forever, to pay for spending programs that they pretend will go away after five, six, eight years, whatever it might be, and they, quote, add up then. Well, that means they don't really add up, because if the spending was permanent, it would be bigger than the taxes. So The spending is always permanent. That's the point. The whole point is to get the spending in there. That is the whole point, yes. And so this is not paid for. It's going to increase an already bad fiscal situation. And I'll just remind everyone, before you launch into making the social safety net bigger, more expansive, and not paying for it, you might want to notice that the existing social safety net, Social Security, under 10 years, it goes bankrupt. Medicare, about four. Medicaid, already here. You know, if you care about the social safety net, as the the left says they do so much, you might want to take care of the one we have that people are actually on and, and needing every day. Well, no, they're expanding it. I mean, this is what's absolutely is amazing. insanity to me. It's total madness. We have an existing, you said it very well, we have an existing social safety net that is slowly but surely, and maybe not so slowly anymore, going insolvent. There are big holes in the existing safety net, huge fiscal holes, promises we made to people that we have no way of paying for. And what Washington is doing is looking at that and saying, let's make the net bigger. Let's not shore it up. Let's not fill in those gaps and make sure that it's sustainable. Let's just do a lot more and make way more promises to people. And that strikes me as unbelievably irresponsible. Now, Doug, I do want to ask you just in terms of the the politics of this, because you've been an observer of politics for a long time as well. We saw every Democrat vote in favor of this resolution last night at the end. All the Republicans voted no. All the Democrats voted yes. That was enough to get it through on party lines. But that doesn't mean that anything has actually been accomplished, right? This has sort of set a framework up for a debate, and you already have – more moderates in sort of moderate-leaning Democrats in the Senate and the House saying, there's no way we're going to support something this big. We can't spend this amount of money. Whereas the progressives on saying, you know, the the squad and their allies are saying, this is not nearly enough. We should spend a lot more. Speaker Pelosi has said, we see that the Senate passed their bipartisan infrastructure bill. I'm not going to touch that until we spend trillions of dollars alone as Democrats. Then we'll get around to it. And there are moderates saying, well, we won't support that. We're going to vote against anything that you bring to the floor unless you bring the bipartisan bill first. I mean, this is not over. The Democrats are not out of the woods. It seems like there's a lot of very complex political dynamics here where this thing could go sideways for them because they have very little wiggle room, right? Uh, They have very little wiggle room. They can lose four votes in the House. And so they have to stay as united in the House as as they did in the Senate. 
that's really hard to do. You you can lose five, six, seven people for completely regional idiosyncratic reasons. You never know exactly what they are. So um, th- I think the politics here are pretty straightforward. The resolution goes through because, as you said, it doesn't become law. It's just a roadmap for the Congress to use in making laws this year. When you actually write the laws and you get down to the meat and potatoes of raising people's taxes and uh, going out and spending trillions of dollars, you're going to see some moderates get pretty queasy, and, and they may vote for the resolution, but they won't vote for the actual bill. Which is and, what and Manchin, right. Manchin is explicitly <laughs> said that, right? He put out a statement yeah. saying, I voted to get this ball rolling, but I'm not comfortable with the size of the ball. And, right. and so they're going to have to figure out what that ultimately looks like. My prediction at these sort of early stages is that you will get the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed and signed by the president. I know that he really wants it to become law. He wants to chalk that up as a bipartisan success. Pelosi sort of holding it hostage to some other stuff, but there's going to be pressure from the White House there. I think ultimately they get that thing passed and signed. And then on whatever the Democrats want to call it, their new their new age definition of infrastructure, human infrastructure, soft infrastructure, whatever, trillions and trillions of dollars. I think you'll have some squeaky wheels on the more moderate side of things who bring the number down considerably, but still not really to a point that it's affordable or paid for. But they'll bring it down, and ultimately the left will go along with it because Nancy Pelosi doesn't lose those votes. Um, and and so you will see both bills passed, but the giant one will be – Still extremely giant and reckless and unaffordable, just a little bit less so. So Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin and a few other people who are in tough districts in the House can go back and say, you know, I really stood up to my party. That's what I think the end game is going to be here. But it's not a guarantee. What do you make of that analysis? Uh, I understand that analysis. I think I agree with you that um, if you're going to get something bipartisan done in Congress, it, it's up to the White House to make it happen. I mean, Congress is partisan. It's got majority offices and bad offices. It's got majority staffs and small staffs. And so, you know, it's very difficult for Congress on its own to do things that are bipartisan. You need the White House cutting the deal and telling Nancy Pelosi what she's going to get if she gets her troops in line and passes this bipartisan infrastructure bill. So it needs to weigh in. It needs to weigh in really heavily in order for that to, uh, to happen. If they don't, then Nancy Pelosi will throw it overboard in a heartbeat. And she will toss the things they like out of that bipartisan bill into the reconciliation bill, send it back to the Senate and say, hey, it's this or nothing. What do you think, guys? And that game of chicken will be remarkable to watch. Um, So the the White House really has a pivotal role here in making this first bill happen. The second one, I think you're right. It it can't pass as they have promised to take it at face value. I mean, the the promises in the Biden budget are, are breathtaking. They promise a level of spending on average relative to the economy that is higher for the next 10 years than any period in our history, including World War II. That's a massive promise to increase the size of government. And they promised the highest level of taxes for any 10 years in our recent history, too. So that's what that reconciliation bill is supposed to be. It won't happen. That's too rich for, for many House moderates. That's too rich, certainly, for the mansions and cinemas in the Senate. And it's going to have to get scaled back. I, I don't know where the, the, the comfort zone is. That's an important question. But it, it's not where they're starting. Cause, and I just get cynical about this because I look at some of these, like there was a statement from some moderates, or I guess they were whispering to reporters in the House saying, we told Pelosi, even though her plan is we're going to do the reconciliation bill first and then the bipartisan thing, we're going to vote no on reconciliation unless we get the bipartisan infrastructure bill first. 
okay, I mean, that's a threat. I'll believe it when I see it. And then you've got the progressives who might say, this isn't nearly enough spending. This is our moment. We've got to go for it. Let's go big. Let's go even bigger. And if the moderates get a bunch of concessions and the number comes down, the progressives are sort of hinting that they might vote no and tank the whole thing. But I guess I've seen Nancy Pelosi operate long enough that she eventually scares the bejesus out of people, gets her party in line. And even if there's one or two votes to spare, she gets it across the finish line. And I guess I'm not I'm not in a headspace to vote against that or bet against Nancy Pelosi's whip count, even though this one is more complicated than most. Yeah, I I would take her at her word. I mean, if she says I'm going to hold this hostage, she's going to. That that is her plan. I, I wouldn't doubt that for a second. You know, I'll just remind everyone that in 2010. She lined up uh, Democrats and made them take tough votes on uh, the Waxman-Markey bill, which is the precursor to the Green New Deal, uh, all the ACA-related stuff, all the Dodd-Frank stuff, that whole whole list of things, recovery acts, and she got wiped out in the next election. So she is willing to round up the troops and march them down to votes that will be the end of their careers. And I'm really interested to see how she does it this time. Because I think in her mind, she's a big government progressive – tax and spend Mm -hmm. liberal. Uh, She's extremely rich, so she and her family will always be fine. And if this means that they can advance a huge progressive agenda, even if it means, you know, electoral setbacks, they're willing to take the pain in elections in order to move the country closer to socialism. I mean, that's sort of my read on it. And I don't know how you can dispute that looking at what is happening literally right now. We didn't even get into inflation, sir. And that that's another piece of all of this that could lead to some of that political pain. But again, they have a, at least she has a high threshold, a high pain threshold. And she's proven that before. I think she's going to try to prove it again. And Republicans are going to have to make an aggressive, sustained case against this to make it as painful as possible for the Democratic Party. Because they have the votes just barely, but it's not necessarily always one big happy family over there. Um, We'll see. Douglas Holtz-Aiken, the former CBO director, he's now president of American Action Forum. I know it was a lot to digest for folks, but I wanted to sort of get your expertise to try to lay out where this thing is headed. We really appreciate your insight. Well, happy to do it. Thanks for having me on. Douglas Holtz-Aiken on The Guy Benson Show, back after this. Energetic, informed, fast-paced, Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on The Guy Benson Show, I want to come back to the issue of inflation which is pinching Americans all across the country. Tyler Goodspeed, an economist, was on Fox Business Network earlier, and he put things in perspective. Cut 25. Listen. My first reaction is there go wage gains for the month of July. Wage gains, uh, nominal wage gains were were up 0.36% last month. And this read says that that was completely erased by inflation. And at an annualized rate, this number corresponds to an annual rate of inflation of 6.2%. And I think this is why we see, we see now consumer inflation expectations are rising. So long run consumer inflation expectations ticked up last month to 3.7%. 
uh, as consumers react to gas, groceries, rent. And I think we, we saw a similar dynamic in the 1960s and early 1970s when consumers were, were much quicker to anticipate rising inflation relative to, to professional forecasters. And so I think the question on my mind is, who do you believe, the Federal Open Market Committee or your, your lying eyes? So the wage gains of Americans were erased by inflation and Americans expect more inflation. And when he starts talking about the 1970s and inflation, it's reasonable to start getting a little bit nervous about that and anxious about that. That was a bad time when the cost of goods and services went way up and outpaced the really the the and decreased the buying power of the U.S. dollar. That's like getting a pay cut in real time right before your very eyes. And the Democrats in Washington look at this, look at these concerns, look at what's happening. Here's another headline from today. Consumer prices rise 5.4% annually annually in July. They look at all of this, and there's you know a newspaper article here. Oh, the White House is concerned. Maybe uh, they might be thinking that Larry Summers, who is warning about infra- in- inflation, he might be right. They look at all of it, and they say what we need to do is spend trillions of of dollars on top of the current trajectory, more than we're already spending, trillions on new programs. And they might say, well, you know what? Maybe it will contribute to inflation. Maybe we will get wiped out in the midterms and our majority will go away, but it's worth it because spending and programs that we implement never get repealed and rolled back because then we start talking about how it's going to kill people. And ultimately, it doesn't happen. So they just want to keep growing and growing and growing the size of the government, whether we can afford it or not, because that is what they believe in. And I can't help but think about those Georgia Senate races. If the Republicans had won just one of them rather than a circle uh, firing squad, things would look a lot different in D.C. The governor of Georgia joins me after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. As we kick off a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show from New York today and tomorrow, filling in for Kennedy on Fox Business tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We're glad that you're here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day if you miss any part of the program. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. The Dow closes up 219 points to 35,484. Joining me now is the governor of the great state of Georgia. He's their 83rd governor. He is Brian Kemp, a Republican governor. It's great to have you back on the show. Hey, good to be back with you, Guy. I want to start with COVID and the Delta wave and the struggle that we're seeing in a lot of states with cases spiking, hospitalizations, especially among almost exclusively unvaccinated people. We're seeing that sort of especially in the southeast. As you're looking at the new school year right around the corner, you've made some tough choices. I remember, you know, going back to 2020 in terms of reopening and decisions that you made at your level and you were criticized even by the president at the time. 
and things turned out actually pretty well in your state, at least in 2020, as you're looking at the Delta surge and you're looking at the reopening of schools this year and the new school year, just talk us through your decision-making process of how you try to balance the public health priorities and interests of the people of Georgia with also other liberties, the economy, the ability of students to thrive in schools. How do you how do you make those decisions? Because they're not easy. No, they're definitely not. And everybody's having to make tough decisions and deal with tough situations. Thankfully, our schools are opening back in Georgia. I visited two already on the first day of class in the last week. Very exciting to see kids in the classroom. That's where they need to be. Uh, We're doing everything in our power to make sure that that continues. But we've had a great working relationship with our school superintendents. Uh, We all went through this last year when we were the first state in the country uh, in many ways with Jefferson City Schools to reopen and get kids back in school uh, after the, you know, hell that we went through in the early days of covid and everybody learned a lot, but we got a great team that's communicating and supporting one another. And so we're continuing to do that. Um, I'm also continuing to talk to them, you know, every few days to see what's happening on the ground. I mean, there's no doubt that Georgia is experiencing uh, a delta wave like we've seen around the country. And our hospitals, I did a Metro Atlanta hospital CEO call uh, a couple of days ago and got some really good feedback from them. They are extremely busy. They're having staff and issues. Uh, the hospitals are full. The, the interesting thing is the, the news media won't really write about this, but they were full before this wave started with people that had put you know, procedures off, surgeries off. People are still having, right. you know, unfortunately, heart attacks, you know, um, trauma that we're seeing with the violent crime in Atlanta, a lot of shootings that they're having to deal with. So it's not necessarily our COVID volume is still – you know, not even close to what our peak was uh, back during the the holiday season this winter. So we're still in good shape. The staff is spending a lot of money augmenting staffing to help the hospitals, and we're going to continue to to fight through this. But we're also urging people, look, talk to your doctor, talk to your medical professional about getting vaccinated. Ninety-plus percent, 95 percent of the people in the hospital with COVID have not been vaccinated. How can you help persuade people in your state to go get vaccinated? Because I looked at the stats before the interview and Georgia is in the bottom five or bottom 10 in the country in vaccination rate. Roughly around 40 percent of Georgians are fully vaccinated. We know that if people are fully vaccinated, even if they get covid like I did a few weeks ago, it is a very mild case. You are very unlikely to go to the hospital. It's almost certain that you're not going to die. A lot of those really severe complications are among unvaccinated people. You just made that point. But it seems like there are, there's still a lot of hesitancy among Georgians. Why is that? And what are you trying to do as a chief executive not to dictate to people or to shame people, but convince people to get the shot? Yeah, good, good question. And, you know, we continue to do a lot of message, you know, constantly on that. I spoke to a big chamber of commerce uh, congressional luncheon yesterday in Columbus, Georgia, and urged them to help us. Because I think at this point, guy, there's not many people that because of the mixed messages coming out of the White House, you know, get vaccinated, take your mask off. Now they're saying put your mask back on. Uh, There's just not a lot of trust there. I think pausing the J&J vaccine. Uh, for a while, looking back, 
uh, really hurt the ability for people to take advantage of the one shot and done. That's what I took four out of the five Kemp family members, uh, Marty and two of the girls and I took Johnson and Johnson. One of our other daughters is a teacher and she took a, she was eligible before we were, uh, and took, um, I think it was a Moderna vaccine. Uh, but you know, we've done that. I'm glad that I did. We continue to message people. Look, don't, don't, trust you know don't listen necessarily to the government talk to your health care provider your local pharmacist your doctor people you know that have been vaccinated um, but there is this hesitancy in the south it's not just a georgia problem we're seeing it all across the south and southeast um, thankfully our approach early on to target our seniors medically fragile first responders health care folks and teachers has really helped us especially on the elderly population our death rates have plummeted plummeted with that age group because we got them vaccinated first. Our numbers are very good there. And that's really helping keep a lot of the vulnerable patients out of the hospital that we saw early in the pandemic. But listen, this is going to be a, a tough fight. The Delta spreading so fast, people are either going to get vaccinated or they're going to get COVID. And my fear is you just don't want to be that person that, that doesn't do it uh, and you get sick and have a really bad health outcome yep. or, or lose your life. But that's a decision that I trust people to make. You know, this is America. I don't think mandates are the way to go on masks or vaccines. Um, I, I'm continuing to tell people, do your own diligence and get comfortable and make a good health care decision for you. In a recent set of comments, you said longer term, the most significant threat to the future of Georgia is crime. And last time you and I chatted, we were face to face down at our affiliate Extra in Atlanta over by the Braves ballpark, which was fantastic. But we had this conversation then about rising crime in Atlanta. It is still a scourge. Talk about that issue and what you're trying to do to bring it at least somewhat under control because it's it's been a real problem, particularly in Atlanta. Well, listen, as a husband to a great first lady, Marty Kemp, and a father of three you know, daughters that range from 18 to 22, I mean, I'm not letting them go to the mall here in Atlanta. I'm not them letting them go pump gas here. People are scared to death. And I hear this literally every day. I had a guy at lunch that had a buddy of his that was moving into a new apartment in Midtown Atlanta and literally got run over by people that were trying to rob and carjack him. They didn't even just push him out of the way. I mean, they literally ran over the guy and broke his leg. He couldn't even come to the lunch today because he's at home recovering from that. Wow. Uh, another guy that was at the lunch was saying that some lady pumping gas at a convenience store was thanking him because he had his jacket off and he was, he was, he was carrying. And she said, thank you. And he said, what are you thanking me for? And he said, for, you know, protecting yourself and helping protect us that are just simply trying to go pump some gas. Um, when you have people that are getting shot, jogging down the sidewalk or, you know, females that are pregnant getting stabbed on public walking trails and you have dangerous street racing that literally the police won't go after or they wouldn't, uh, something need to be done. I've created a crime suppression unit using state resources. Uh, thankfully, the Atlanta Police Department is helping us in those efforts. The problem is their policymakers at City Hall in Atlanta have yep. their hands tied behind their back, but we're uh, they're riding with us, so we're chasing these folks. We've made over 6,400 stops and, and issued either arrests or citations. We picked up guy 132 wanted persons, 
several that had outstanding murder warrants. We then pounded an incredible 526 vehicles, um, you know, with our with our uh, crime suppression unit, which is State Patrol, Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Uh, we've got game wardens and post-certified game wardens going after these folks on four-wheelers through parks and neighborhoods and anywhere else. And, but ultimately, and there's only so much you can do at the state level because it's also a city problem. And when you have the city leadership and the Democratic mayor who's decided not to run for re-election, I think for obvious reasons, and police leaving the force because they don't feel supported, you're going to get bad outcomes. And I know you're trying to turn that around, but some of it is also local officials have to make better decisions and support their police. Governor, I do have to get your reaction. The former president, Donald Trump, put out a statement today about you. Uh, he sort of, to, sort of seemed to revel that you got booed at a recent Republican event, saying that it's because you didn't deal with the election that was rigged, he said, in the state of Georgia, and that the country's going to hell as a result. Now, just your reaction to the statement from the president, former president. Well, listen, I, I won the straw poll at that event, 75% of the vote, and you know, political opponents are, are going to boo me. Uh, unfortunately, I've never blew, booed a fellow Republican at any Georgia Republican Party event in the state of Georgia, but you know, I can handle that. I've been following the law and the Constitution here. I worked very hard for President Trump. I supported his legal challenges to the elections. But at the end of the day, guys, I've told you before, uh, I simply had to follow the law and the Constitution once the Secretary of State certified the election. Um, you know, and we're going to continue to do that. Yep. And, we, and we've also passed we've also passed the Election Integrity Act. I've done over 90 interviews now pushing back against the woke cancel culture the national media, the activists like Stacey Abrams, uh, to simply put a voter ID requirement on our absentee ballots and secure drop boxes and, and fix a lot of the mechanical issues that we saw last year. And we're not going to waver or back down even to a Justice Department lawsuit. We're going to fight them like hell. And some of those interviews that you referenced were right here on The Guy Benson Show. I personally support what you did, the right thing, in my view, even though it was painful on the election. I supported that law that you got passed over a lot of demagoguery. And now there's, you know, a year plus to go before a potential reelection. We look forward to continuing this conversation. Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia. Thank you, sir. Take care, Guy. We'll step aside. Be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So there's this recall election coming up next month in the state of California, and some polls recently have pointed to a tightening on the question of whether or not Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor of California, should be recalled. He had a relatively comfortable lead on that question, i.e. no on recall was ahead, but that is getting close, and some of the polls show that it could be a statistical dead heat. And the most motivated voters in California are the ones who are in favor of getting rid of the governor. Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, weighed in. She, of course, is against the recall because she wants the Democratic governor to remain in office. And she explained her reasoning in very classic Nancy Pelosi terms. 
in cut 26, a lot of nuance here from the Speaker of the House. But we have to also get out the boat, reject the recall. It's not good for you. It's not good for children or other living things. (laughs) It's not good for children or other living things, says Pelosi of the recall. She, more than any politician I can think of, is constantly talking about the children. She justifies virtually every policy that she either supports or wants to oppose by invoking the children. Now, we can just set aside her radical abortion stance, which I think sort of complicates her devotion to the children. But she talks about the children endlessly. So her message to Californians, we have to reject the recall because it's not good for the children and other living things, which I think is also kind of her to think about various other critters, plants, and mere adults. What a persuasive argument in favor of keeping Gavin Newsom in office. Now, Newsom himself, he's getting a little punchy. In an interview, he was mad about criticisms against the state of California from elsewhere in the country, cut 27. If our homegrown teams start focusing on what's right, everybody outside this state is bitching about this state. Well, I think the problem, Governor, is that people inside the state are bitching about the state, to use your colorful language there, Mr. Newsom. The reason that you're in danger of getting recalled is because a lot of Californians signed petitions to get this on the ballot to throw you out of office. These are not interlopers from other states. These are your constituents who are not happy with the job you're doing. Up in Oakland, California, where former U.S. Senator Barbara Boxer recently got mugged in broad daylight, assaulted and robbed in the middle of the day. Oakland has a huge crime problem, and the city is now begging the governor to intervene and get the state involved. Now, part of the issue is you have these weak DAs in places like San Francisco and L.A. where they're decriminalizing crime in a lot of cases. And I'm a pretty sort of pro criminal justice reform person and police reform, but there have to be limits. And what they're doing in some of these big cities in California, clearly not working. Just look at the results. And then when you demonize the police and tie one of their hands behind their back when they're trying to enforce the law, yes, you embolden criminals, and we're seeing that. So Oakland, California, one of the deepest blue cities in the country, now begging for intervention from the state to help bring this crime explosion under control. I wonder if Speaker Pelosi thinks that rampant, rising, spiking crime might be, quote, not good for children and other living things. I know that's what she wants to say about the recall election. How about the crime that's plaguing communities in California? What about the DA that got elected in your city, Nancy, who is consistently siding with criminals? When there's videos of people just rampaging through stores, looting items because it's more or less legal to do it now in the city of San Francisco, your reaction is, well, we need to know why they're hurting and how they feel alienated and why are they so damaged? No, you have to enforce the law and protect citizens from criminals. So again, it's not the city of Oakland making up a crime spree, they see what's right in front of them, and they're asking for help. And clearly, they don't feel like the state has done a good job. 
And crime, I think, is going to be front and center if it would still be an upset in my view. But if this governor gets recalled next month, I think crime will be a very big reason why. And if you think that, oh, it's just a bunch of right wing MAGA people that are behind this. No. Even the city officials in Oakland, of all places, are looking around and saying, "Uh oh, this is not good. We've got former U.S. senators getting mugged in broad daylight. Please help us. And what Gavin Newsom says is, oh, well, look at all these people bitching about California from out of state. Oh, it's some other people's fault. And Pelosi is just worried about the children, of course, except when she's not. What she's worried about is Democrats and power, which is what she is always concerned about, first and foremost, with Nancy Pelosi. She's made that abundantly clear. We are weeks away. Big decision for Californians coming up. It's the Guy Benson Show. We will step aside. Be right back. Stay tuned. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The Guy Benson Show. Halfway through the show today on this Wednesday, so we're halfway through the broadcast week here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you. Podcast free every day, GuyBensonShow.com. Catch me filling in for Kennedy tonight in primetime, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox Business Network. Joining me here in studio on the radio side is our friend and colleague Martha McCallum, executive editor and anchor of The Story, every day at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. She's also the co-anchor of Fox News Politics Generally, author of the best-selling book, Unknown Valor. Check out her podcast, The Untold Story, with Martha McCallum at foxnewspodcast.com. Great to see you in person. Great to see you in person, Guy. It's Good to always, have you here. always a pleasure to be up here in New York. I watched with great interest, after the fact, because we were on the air, but I watched it on YouTube, your interview with the former CDC director, mm-hmm. Robert Redfield, earlier in the week. You asked, I think, a lot of the questions that were on many parents' minds I opened the show today talking about masking in schools. I have a huge piece today at townhall.com just trying to wade through the evidence, if it exists at all, that supports masking in schools. Look, I don't think that masks are the hill to die on. I think making sure schools are open is the hill to die on given the disaster of last year. But this is a pretty important question. Does the evidence show that masking little children in school helps at all when it comes to the pandemic? And I was really struck by that answer that he gave you where he said it's sort of it's a fair criticism when people ask where is the evidence because it seems like it's a bit shoddy at best. Yeah, I, I mean it, it's, a, it's a classic bureaucracy problem, right? When you've got $42 billion going to the CDC through the NIH and they spent less than 2% of it on COVID studies. Now, if there was someone in charge, you know, of the finance side and the research side there, when this pandemic began, they should have been able to switch gears, right? They should have been able to say, look, we're dealing with something unprecedented. So all those grants that we've had backed up for the last 10, 15 years that are what is eating up all that $42 billion, we're going to put all that on hold. We're going to start studying the impact of masking. We're going to start studying the impact of vaccination, of social distancing, because I think people are so tired of hearing things change. Right. Remember, it was like, oh, it's six feet. No, it's three feet. No, it actually should have been 15 feet. This is we're obviously in uncharted territory and we don't expect everyone to know all the answers. I don't think anybody expected what we're seeing right now with this Delta variant. And there's a lot of questions about whether or not there's, you know, justified panic or not. I don't know the answer to that. So I'm putting both sides out there. 
at this point with Delta. But yeah, he admitted, you know what? We should have spent more time doing studies because these decisions are now being made based on almost no actual evidence. So what are parents supposed to do with that? Right. Because if you're going to tell everyone that it's the recommendation of the CDC nationally that every child and really body in a school, like you know, mm. parents, teachers, children, everyone should be universally masked at all times indoors, if that's your position, I think the least you can do is explain specifically why. Here is the data. Here are the studies. And it's very scant. I mean some of the studies – actually point in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Some of the studies are incomplete and don't have a control group, so it doesn't really prove anything. Hugh Hewitt, a friend of mine and a mentor, he has a national radio show every morning. He asked Dr. Fauci about this yesterday, and he pressed Fauci specifically on kindergartners, like sort of elementary school kids. Why should they have to wear masks, given the experience, for example, in the UK, where they have not required it and things have been fine in schools? Here's part of Fauci's answer, quote, If we all of a sudden say, okay, kids don't wear masks, then you find out retrospectively that this virus in a very, very strange and unusual way is really hitting kids really hard. That's the thing, end quote. And I'm trying to interpret that. It sounds to me like Fauci is saying, well, we're just erring on the side of caution because what if this turns out to be worse than we know? Maybe we should just do the masking just in case. Preemptively. Okay. That's an argument. It's not data, though. And and what worries me about that answer, Martha, and again, I'm not like hardcore dug in on this issue one way or another. What bothers me about the answer is that could be used to justify anything, basically forever. Like when Rochelle Walensky, the current director of CDC, was saying, well, we might be hypothetically some mutations away from the virus defeating the vaccines. If we're going to talk about potential hypothetical future threats to justify current restrictions, there's no limitation to that. That's what worries me. Yeah. And I mean, I I think one of the things we've learned all along is that this is, we don't really know that much about how all of this works and we don't really know that much about what works against it to prevent it. Um, I, I think that, you know, I mean, I know people who literally got COVID like sitting in their apartment in New York city, you know, the people who were the most locked down by choice, you know, I'm not leaving, I'm not going anywhere who got it. So I just, I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but I do think that people are, people are, are worn out from hearing sort of mamby pamby, like this might work. It might not like, and then, and then the mandate, you know, right. <laughs> and then the mandate right. comes. And so you're thinking, well, do you know, do you know, or do you not know? And then I, you I say, think, why you ask right. a simple question, show me why. Yes. And it's sort of like, because I said because so, because I said so. And because I'm worried, I think obviously it's in that answer. It's, it's obvious that Fauci's concerned. He doesn't want to be the guy who said, don't, don't wear masks. And then it turns out that, that it would have been a good idea. He doesn't, he's covering his himself. Right. Which, which <laughs> is covering fine. himself. And it, it is fine. I, I keep going back to, you know, the people that I trust the most on this are doctors that I trust and people who I turn to when I have questions about anything that we're covering. And I think people need to be able to rely on their own doctors and be able to use that and say to their company or say to their school, here's what I'm doing based on my profile or my children's profile and their health or their psychological issues or whatever. I think it's best if he doesn't wear a mask. You know, this is the opinion of our doctor. Um, that should matter, right. honestly. That Family really ought doctor to matter. opinions, yes. parental decisions, and also if you're going to still have blanket guidelines that apply to most people, and I think what they're doing in Florida with opt-outs makes sense to me, mm-hmm. but if there's going to be blanket guidance from the very top, 
at the very least, that guidance should be rooted in really strong yes. science. Yes, and as that's what Redfield said. Not. He said we don't have. Unfortunately, we don't have the data on whether or not masking should be mandated. And um, you know, bad on them that they don't have those studies. A and B. At least I liked interviewing him because he's a he's just a straight shooter. You ask him a question, he says, "Yeah, you know, that was a mistake." And this is what I think yeah, about this. Fair and criticism. Not everyone will agree with me, but you know, um, the other really scary thing that he talked about goes to what you just said about Rochelle Walensky. And what's coming next. And I I think that this is the thing that didn't get enough um, attention in the interview because it certainly got my attention. Uh, I asked him, because you, Dr. Redfield, believe that this virus was engineered in a lab. And that's what he has on the record. He believes it came from the lab. He was ahead of the curve. And that it was a gain of function virus that was um, amped up in the lab. I said, so is that why these variants are so much more souped up? than you would have expected because nobody warned about this. Nobody said, oh, by the way, it's going to come back gangbusters in the summer. Nobody warned about this. He said, yes. He said, these got a jump start in the lab. They're more human efficient because the Genesis COVID virus was souped up. The variants are also souped up. And he said, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but I think if you go back and look at what he said, you'll this will line up. I believe it lines up. He said, so, so this Delta we have now, he said, I hate to say it, but I think in a couple of months we're going to have one that's even worse because the virus is learning how to be more human efficient as it goes. And that's his that's his prediction. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen. And if it does, you know, that people have a lot of natural immunity, vaccine immunity. And but but just one more thing, guys, please. So if that's the case, right. If it was, if it's an engineered virus that le- leaked out of the lab and it's now mutating or whatever the proper scientific word is into these, these variants that are, are becoming more and more efficient at transmission, which appears to be true, right? The UK one and the India one, they, they appear to be getting better at transmission. Yes. Why isn't the, the, why isn't it a huge national security imperative to find out what the heck went on in that lab yep. and what China knew about it and how much they knew about these variants even potentially? Nobody talks about it. The Biden administration is in the middle of a 90 day thing. What's going to happen with that? August 24th is 90 days. I mean, this should be top of mind. And yet it was verboten. Not only was it not a priority, you couldn't even mention it. Couldn't post about it. When Redfield first started talking about it, he said he got threats, physical threats from scientists. Mm -hmm. You had the entire media, social media, blacking it out because there were some bad people, i.e. the Trump folks, Republicans, suggesting this might be the case. It was declared misinformation. Based on nothing, turns out to have just been information, not misinformation. And now it's sort of like, okay, we're allowed to talk about it again, but what are we actually doing to get to the truth? Because it seems not like some sort of potential racist thing that will stir anger against Asian people. I know that's the excuse that they use to not pursue the truth. I mean, this is a disease no that has killed millions of people. It's yeah. crazy. It, it needs to be a huge national security priority because it, it very well can happen again. And we're still in the middle of it. I will note that I've seen a lot of nervous social media posts about some new studies suggesting that the transmissibility we know is heightened with the Delta variant, which we believe started in India, as you pointed out. And when you look at the transmissibility, it's not just among unvaccinated people. The vaccines now are less effective at blocking right. transmission or blocking someone from contracting the disease, as I know, because I had a breakthrough case mm-hmm. roughly two weeks ago. But that's the concerning news where the efficacy is no longer in the 90s or 80s, but might be in the 60s yeah. or 70s. Yeah. 
The good news is it is still extremely, extremely, extremely effective way up in the 90s against severe cases or death, which is exactly what my experience was. I How did you ve- feel? Sniffles, cough for a few days, and done. It was a mild cold for a few days, which is the whole point, right? right? This is what the doctors have said. Which, by the way, is what a coronavirus is. The coronavirus has been around for forever. Right, <laughs> and, just not you this know, one. A coronavirus is a cold. Um, this one is obviously more serious than a cold. But yes, because you're vaccinated, you're protected to a certain level. But I think you're right. I think that the coming story on this, based only on my, my gut, uh, and that's all, is that we're going to learn that the that a lot of people who have the vaccine can get this Delta. Right. And it's a cold. And a breakthrough, which is a yeah. lot less concerning than if you're not of vaccinated. Course. And then there's also the question about booster shots. And the CDC is estimating that more than a million Americans yeah. have gone and gotten one, sort of yeah. on the fly. Other countries are doing that more really? as a policy. Yeah, that they just estimated that in a document today. Interesting. The Israelis are doing it. The Brits are doing it. I think there's going to be a big discussion about whether we should have a third shot but of again, the Pfizer. But like, again, let's figure out, you know, if that people. works. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Let, let's do like, some let's studies. Let's get some people to volunteer to have that third shot and find out what happens. You know, I, I think that's that that's something that we need to be much more proactive on. Last topic, totally different, but I know you're hot on it, and we discussed it yesterday here on the show. Now we have examples out of Nevada and Oregon where school systems are deliberately – intentionally, explicitly reducing standards for, you know, graduation requirements, for what counts as a failing grade, what cannot be held against you in your grades, like being late on assignments or not participating or showing up for class. You can't hold that against kids anymore. This is all done in the name of equity. It seems like just a fast track to imposed mediocrity. And I just, I can't imagine worse lessons to be teaching kids and yet it's sort of in vogue right now. Yeah. I mean, okay, what are you if you're a governor who is in charge of overseeing, among the many things that you oversee, a public education system, right? What is the mission? What's the goal of a public education system? It is to educate the children and students of your state. That's your goal. You better meet that goal. You better do everything you can to get every kid to meet that goal. We all understand that not everyone will end up meeting that goal, but you know what? Then they might not graduate, okay? This is reality. This is what, there are plenty of ways, and most of these school systems have more than enough money. I know there's always a question of resources, but if you really break it down, there are plenty of places in charter schools across the country where they do a lot with $10,000, $11,000. And then you've got inner city schools that have seventeen, eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars $19,000 per student who are doing a lousy job. So, so now in Oregon, Kate Brown signed a bill that said that you don't need to have a, a, a standard. You basically can graduate without knowing how to read or write. It used to be that you needed a sophomore level to read and write and do math. They've abandoned the sophomore level and said you don't need it to graduate. How is this helping these students? How And, and now, because they abandoned the sophomore year level, um, they've also abandoned, according to some pieces that I, re- that I read, if, you know, straighten me out if I'm wrong on this, I hope I am, they've also abandoned the workshops that help people get to the sophomore level. So what, what are we doing? What are we doing wasting our time in school if we are not getting kids? The fact of the matter is that if you keep going back again and back again and you get these kids to, to get to the level that they have to be at, you can, it can be done. You know, there are, there are going to be a few students. Yes. There's going to be a few students who might not make it through, but you have to implement tough standards and you have to insist that everyone meet them. Otherwise, what 
What difference does a high school graduation diploma right, you're mean? Bring the, you're talking about it's an goals. Empty piece of paper. Stick it on the wall. If you bring the goals down, it's, no, it is not helping anyone. It's and, hurting them. But they frame it as if they're doing this to help students of color in particular. How does it help them? And and what does that say to them? Yes. What message are you sending specifically? We to We don't those expect kids? you to succeed. Let me tell you, I, I will take anybody in Oregon who is in favor of this to visit a number of charter schools and Catholic schools in New York City that are doing amazing work with inner city kids. And they will tell you that if they ever, if they ever for a moment told those kids that it was okay not to meet the bar, not to succeed, not to get where, we, where you want to go in order to graduate, it, it, it just sends the absolute worst message. You have to set the bar high for all students and insist that they meet that bar. And when they are having trouble based on you know other things that they might be struggling with, you got to be there to help them through those. And two. to tell them that you know they can't or we don't think you can because of the color of your skin. I mean, it's actual bigotry. And then saying, oh, we don't think Absolutely. you can do this because of the color of your skin. And so we're going to lower standards for everyone. What Remember, a isn't disgrace! Barack Obama that spoke of the soft bigotry of low expectations. Bush did too. And Bush did too. I'm sorry. And so so that and that's a phrase that needs to be remembered. I mean, what we're seeing so much of that now, aren't we? The soft bigotry of low expectations. But I said yesterday on the show, it's becoming the hard institutionalized right. it bigotry. The, it was Bush for the um, education for the uh, lower education, lower school education programs. Absolutely, I'm, I stand corrected. And it's it's really. But something they're, they're that now implementing should, the low expectations. They are they're systemically institutionalizing them. It's actual. What a, it's heartbreaking. Systemic racism. You want to look for systemic yes. racism? That would be it. Yes. By definition, I would agree. Martha McCallum. The story every Thank day, 3 p.m. on Fox News Channel. Great to see you. Great to see you, as always. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Folk tales. Woo. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Time for Woke Tales. This story out of Georgia. Headline from foxnews.com, Black Mother Files Complaint Against Atlanta Elementary School for Racial Segregation. Quote, disbelief. A mother in Atlanta filed a federal discrimination complaint against an elementary school, alleging that the school, the principal, segregated students based on race. Quote, we've lost sleep, like trying to figure out why a person would do this, says the mother, Kyla Posey. First, it was just disbelief. That I was having this conversation in 2020 with a person that looks just like me, a black woman. So the principal in this case was a black woman. She was segregating elementary school classes by race. They put all the black students into two classrooms and all the white students into six classrooms. And when this mother found out about the segregation, she asked the principal why. And the principal said, well, we thought it would be a good fit. They literally just decided that the skin color would determine which class these children were in. And apparently the principal was trying to defend this, saying, oh, it's about people feeling comfortable and safe and fitting in and not feeling isolated. This is actual, literal school segregation in the South. And what's amazing is in the name of wokeness and equity and all their buzz terms, this principal who made this decision, the pro-segregation decision, probably thinks that she's the good guy here, which really illustrates how backwards this mentality truly is. Stranger than fiction, woke tales on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour with Kat Timpf coming up. Don't go anywhere. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome in. I'm in New York today and tomorrow, filling in for Kennedy, my friend, on Fox Business Network, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Hope you'll join us for that. Here on the radio side, our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. And happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious, crisp, refreshing, alcoholic. So 21 plus only, please. We encourage you always to drink responsibly. And you can find out more at thelongdrink.com. You've got to try it for yourself, but you can see where it's available in your area. They have expanded a lot. They are continuing to expand. Thelongdrink.com. You can also order online. That's an option that we use in our household. With us now in studio, as we kick off the happy hour, is another friend of the program, as we like to say. She, in fact, was just filling in for Kennedy, Mm -hmm. handing the baton to me now. It's Kat Tim, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld! Exclamation Point every weeknight, 11 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel, also co-host of the Tyrus and Timph podcast. Hello, Kat. Good to see you. Hello, Guy Benson. It is good to see you as well. We had our mutual friend Janice Dean on the show yesterday reacting to the Cuomo news, and I started that thread on Twitter, an appreciation thread for her and what she's done and what she's been through over the last year plus, and I read a few of the responses to her on the air, and I think it choked her up a little bit. You were one of the people that chimed in. And I saw also on social media that you were at least floating the idea that there should be a parade thrown for Janice Dean. Yes, and keep in mind, I'm not a fan of parades in general. (laughs) You're not a parade gal? No, I'm not not a big parade gal. Like, if there was one for me, I might not go. Like, that's... (laughs) That would never happen, A. But B, like, that's how much, because it's crowded, and, like, the bathroom situation is impossible. And there's no such thing as good, like, parade weather, because it's like, even if it's a nice day, the amount of time in the sun, I'm so Polish and pasty, I'm going to burn. And since I'm wearing, you know, clothes that are not beach attire, I'm going to get a weird sunburn. And, you know, it, it's just it's just not... It's just it's just not for me. But you would go to a Janice but Dean parade. A Janice Dean parade. Like and also it's a curse on the entire city for the because the traffic and everything else. But Janice Dean, I think should have a a day where it is a parade in honor of Janice Dean and we built and and, and it would be, you know, she's it, it would be one float. And, and it would just her. be Janice like Dean. She'd be in like a sequence thing and she'd be throwing that baton yes. twirling and everything. I think she'd be really into it. We'd all clap. It would be the friendliest parade yes. in the history of parades. Yes, exactly. I'm thinking she needs like a crown and um, some white wine on ice that she can sip and like <laughs> maybe some fries or something in case she gets hungry. <laughs> and she just and she, it's the parade is just just Janice Dean on, on a float. But it's, it, it's got to be an amazing float. And this is all related to the announcement yesterday, Governor Cuomo here in New York resigning 
two weeks from yesterday. Yeah. And what pushed him out was the sexual harassment scandal. There was almost no mention of the nursing home deaths and the covering up of data and the manipulating of all of it. And the book and the deal, priority testing, yeah, yeah the special it's, treatment. I mean, it's it hard goes, to remember. It them goes all. on and on. But on the piece of this with the sexual misconduct, here's how he framed it: still lying on his way out Ugh, the door. Cut three. It. Listen. I thought a hug and putting my arm around a staff person while taking a picture was friendly, but she found it to be too forward. I kissed a woman on the cheek at a wedding, and I thought I was being nice, but she felt that it was too aggressive. I have slipped and called people honey, sweetheart, and darling. I meant it to be endearing, but women found it dated and offensive. Kat, here's the thing. If what Andrew Cuomo had done to women was hugs, putting arm around, kissing on cheek, and saying darling, this would not be a thing. No. Instead, he was grabbing butts, and breasts Boobs. and kissing mouth and yes. asking about sexual habits yes. and making passes at women who work for him. Who work for him. Doing this to women who he has professional power over. Uh, uh, it, it just because he's Italian, which as someone who is married to an Italian, I said this on Kennedy and I will say it again because I, I find it deeply offensive. Because if my husband were to do any of these things... I would impeach him right out of my home. He would be done. <laughs> this is not normal. This is not normal. It is not normal. It is not okay. Um, and I, 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 I was disgusted by, you know, he should have just said, I quit. There's the speech. I'm sorry later. Because he continued, as you said, to lie. He continued to gaslight. He talked about how much he loves his daughter, which, you know, just perpetuates the narrative that if somebody, you know, is a nice guy to some people, he can't be a predator to others, regardless of whether or not there are 11 corroborated claims. Um, So it's like he just had to do, you know, more harm because the seventh investigations, the seven scandals or what, it's not enough. And he keeps lying and gaslighting about this stuff, yes. which is in black and white. And he also keeps gaslighting and lying about the COVID stuff. And weirdly, it seems like there's still this major reluctance among a lot of Democrats and media figures to really go after him on that, even though it was actual life and death and absolute corruption to cover it up because they're so invested still in how much they loved him in those press conferences. Yeah. And now he wasn't Donald Trump. They can't truly bring themselves to nail him to the wall on something that they all collectively said was his strength, even though it wasn't. Yeah. They can't let it go. Plus, then they have to look at people like Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, who has some of the same you know, questions surrounding her. Um, look, I, I mean, he's <laughs> I saw, you know, my buddy Brian Yenis on the air saying he's like homeless. He doesn't have another property yet. Like he's going to probably move in with Chris. I mean, what else does he do? Uh, But I mean, he's been in that governor's mansion. I wonder if he started packing. I mean, two weeks. Is he going to be able to to get movers? Who are the, is he making calls? Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm at the governor's (laughs) mansion. Uh, I need a truck. Like it's going to be weird. It's really strange. Yeah, I think probably in his mind when he thinks of packing, he's thinking anatomy. Right. Yes. This is how his brain works. Now he's yes. like, oh, I've got to pack up this place where I feel like I'm entitled to live. Right. Just, just an average Joe. Right. He's right. an outsider. He said yeah. just the son of a governor and yeah. a three term governor. And the president of the United States reacted to all this with sadness. He said it's so sad because he's done a hell of a job. Quote, 
on a whole range of things. And I was like, was one of those things COVID? Because that was your position, Joe Biden. Yeah, gold standard. During the campaign, you put him in your primetime convention lineup and you celebrated him as the model for the country. Do you still stand by that? I see that Jen Psaki circled back to that and tweeted, oh, no, he was just talking about infrastructure. No, he wasn't. Quote, a whole range of things. Hell of a job. Yeah. That's the Joe Biden note also, of sadness. is our infrastructure good? Why, yeah, in New why, York. Why does it take me if I get a car on a Friday <laughs> afternoon uh, over an hour to get a mile home, and I just I just get out and walk? I, is it good? Is that good? Is that an example of infrastructure? It's horrible. Um, and you know, the only way you could say he did a hell of a job is if you're saying, "Well, he did a hell of a job," like you know, sarcastically, or but if you're did, like emphasizing hell, hell, like he made it hell to live here because <laughs> he did. Because I was here the whole time. You mentioned Chris Cuomo, Mm -hmm. the younger brother of the brothers Cuomo, and Brian Stelter of CNN went on Stephen Colbert's show last night, which, you know, when I think humor and just a barrel of laughs, I'm thinking Brian Stelter from CNN. So he was a guest on Colbert on The Late Show, and Colbert did ask him about this whole Chris Cuomo thing. He's on vacation right now. It's extremely awkward. Here's part of that exchange in Cut 10. How does that create any conflict over at CNN behind closed doors? Are people mad at him or is he is he in trouble? Some people are mad at him. By the way, I can confirm the New York Times report. I'll I'll confirm it for your viewers. I also have a source that says Chris was on the phone with his brother this week. Is your source Chris Cuomo? He is not. He is not. Right. You got to have boundaries. You got to draw a line. Why? He doesn't. Uh, I think he does, actually. Really? I think Chris does. I don't know about the governor. What are the boundaries? I think Chris does. What are the boundaries? The boundary that, that CNN management presented to him in May when, when they admitted he screwed up. They said, yeah. you know, what you did was inappropriate. You were on the phone with your brother's aides advising them on what to do, and that was inappropriate. But they said, of course you're going to talk to your brother. You know, there's nothing more important. But he than didn't talk question. about his brother once the trouble started. He That's said, I'm right. not going to talk about my brother. And that was also a management ruling. And so the but way why didn't I they rule that this? way when his brother was on the show pretty much every night? Uh, during the yeah, COVID crisis. I think it's really that complicated. That seems like an odd uh, conflict of rules. It is an odd conflict, but I don't think uh, if we open up the journalism ethics book, there's no page for this. It's the, the craziest set of circumstances you can imagine. Okay. So I will give credit to Colbert, who was sort of not giving an inch there. Right. Now, it might be a little bit late to be on a high horse about this, but the points are all legitimate that Colbert raised there, saying... What do you mean he has boundaries? There seem to be no boundaries. Yeah. And he and- said, oh, you know, and Stelter goes, oh, well, that was CNN's ruling. And Colbert makes the obvious point. But how come that ruling wasn't in place back when the brothers were on the air having, you know, a wonderful brotherly time yucking it up every night? And then the news turned bad. And now you can't mention him anymore. That's an obvious disconnect. And then Stelter concludes there, Kat, by saying, well, it's very complicated and there's no real rule in the journalism playbook for this. I think there is. It's called a conflict of interest, which is glaring when it involves covering your family. And what CNN allowed was positive coverage of Governor Cuomo when things were good. And then when things turn negative, oops, never mind. It's a conflict of interest. We can't do this anymore. And we know that the advising was still continuing between the brothers Cuomo after Chris Cuomo said it was inappropriate and it wouldn't happen again. I mean, that was an awful lot of spin there from Stelter. Right. And yeah, to call that complicated is offensive to all of the many, many, very many complicated things there are about life, right? It's not. It's coverage, 
with the coverage when it's good, no coverage when it's bad. There it is. Like that's that's not complicated. I explained it in like just a few words. Right, with the same last name. Yeah. Brothers yeah. coverage, good allowed, bad <laughs> not allowed. Yeah, th- there you go. I mean, I, I, if seems, that's complicated, I hate to see what the rest of your life looks seems like. Seems bad. And if you're a newsman, because remember at CNN they say they don't have opinion hosts. They only have news people. Of course. If you're a news anchor and you're Chris Cuomo and you are not covering a scandal involving your brother, but you are advising him about how to make some of these problems go away on the sexual harassment stuff, and then you are told you can't do that anymore, you apologize, you say you won't do it in the future, and then you're still doing it? Yeah. I don't know how you justify any of it, and uh, complicated doesn't cut it. Especially the reports that CNN offered to give him a sabbatical to go help his brother, and he was like, nah, I'm good. And then he just does both anyway. I mean, it's just at every turn the wrong move. At every turn. Stelter does have this very strange obsession with our network and Fox. It, he just seems to sit around all day and watch Fox and attack. I feel like if he simply held the same standards that he has, which I think oftentimes are ridiculous, with other networks, and if he held his own network to that standard, I think that answer would have been very different from him. Right? Like just imagine oh, that I it can't. was that that the brother and the governor were both named Hannity, mm-hmm. right? And then how would Brian Stelter talk about the media ethics there versus this? And I think it has to be night and day, and I think we all know it. Yeah, and for one of us to get in there and be like, well, listen, I, I, I do have a source, <laughs> a source that Hannity did. Like, buddy, and the way he says it is if he's some, you know, like – he is a you know just doing dogged reporting yeah, out on the trail. It's yeah. like he walked is down the, the source hall. your buddy <laughs> who works in the same office in your bros. All right, I can confirm to your viewers at this yeah, hour. Yeah, like don't talk like that, idiot. <laughs> Sorry, I mean Brian Stelter. Yes, we're we're very polite here. I shouldn't call names. We're professional. We're gonna take a break. When we come back, we're gonna shift subjects to an interesting study about. Revenge. Mm. We're going to get Cat Timp's take on revenge on the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Happy hour. On the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. In studio with me in New York City is Kat Timp, our colleague and our friend. Here's the headline. Revenge is a dish most prefer to serve hot and fast, study reveals. This is out of Richmond, Virginia. Quote, revenge is a dish best served cold is a phrase embedded in the English language. But it would seem that most people prefer to strike right away without any plotting, a new study reveals. Despite the Hollywood depiction of people savoring sweet revenge after months or years of plotting, a team from Virginia Commonwealth University says people would rather choose to retaliate right away. Across six experiments, 58% of participants preferred to take immediate revenge, even if it meant dealing a lesser blow to an enemy in order to teach them a lesson. Kat, I don't know this for a fact, but part of me suspects you might have some thoughts and or experience on revenge. I actually do have some thoughts. So revenge, 
I don't think it's best served cold because it's not best for you. If this person wronged you and you're going to then spend your free time plotting an elaborate way to get back at them, you're giving someone who wronged you more of your life than they deserve. Right, more power, more time, yes. more headspace. And also, it's really important to be real with yourself about whether or not they care. Um, I hate to bring gender into it, but women do this. This is something that women, not always, but all too often, I see women doing this. There's a dude, they're into the dude, they're more into the dude than a dude is into them. They eventually realize that, you know, regardless of the red flag after red flag, he's finally like, no, I'm not into you like that. So then she plants. She is like, okay, so I'm going to go to this club and like, I'm going to invite my guy friend and I'm going to post, I'm gonna, what, what time should I post this post of me looking really hot with this guy so he'll think that maybe I'm with this guy? It's like, you know what? He doesn't care. He doesn't care. No, he's made that clear. <laughs> because if he would, you know, he didn't tell you later and thinking, but she's not going to talk to another guy. Like he knows that that's how that works. He just doesn't care if you do. And so I think revenge is a dish that's often sad to serve. Yeah, it's maybe not that satisfying. Right. Especially if the other person doesn't get hurt by it really at all. Mm -hmm. I think the point is to try to inflict some sort of retaliatory harm. Yeah. I think that karma, like, I, I don't believe in karma in, like, the juju sense of the word, but I do believe that, you know, people who treat people certain ways, that, like, that your behavior and the way you act and what you put out into the world is going to ex affect the experience that you have in the world. I also just don't really know how a long revenge plot really looks in reality. Like, yeah. I'm sure there are real examples of this. Just in my life, let's say I wanted to get revenge on someone. Yeah. I would not have the foggiest clue about how to plan for years because to finally spring the Because you have a job trap. and a husband and yes, a, life a life of your own, <laughs> <laughs> as do I. That's exactly it. And it's, you know, it can be really sad and it can have the reverse effect. Because I've heard guys be like, oh, like, she's... She's really up in her Instagram game after I stopped talking to her. Like, it's like li the best revenge really is living well. I really, really, truly think that's it. I think that's, that's the one that's true. Yes, because often it's just like miserable, bitter people, mm -hmm. and they want you to be equally miserable and bitter. Mm -hmm. And if you're just not and being happy and finding some sunshine, as Janice Dean would say, yes. that's the best revenge. This is almost like a little sincerely cat here. Yeah. On the Guy Benson Show with Cat Tim. Love to do it. Our friend, our colleague in New York City. Cat, great to see you. Always same to you. The happy hour continues next. GuyBensonShow.com. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. Earlier in the program today, we caught up with Governor Brian Kemp, Republican of Georgia, who is seeking re-election. That election would be next year in the Peach State. We talked about crime. We talked about COVID and more. Here's part of my discussion with Governor Brian Kemp. I want to start with COVID and the Delta wave and the struggle that we're seeing in a lot of states with cases spiking hospitalizations, especially among almost exclusively unvaccinated people. We're seeing that sort of especially in the southeast. As you're looking at the new school year right around the corner, you've made some tough choices. I remember, you know, going back to 2020 in terms of reopening and decisions that you made at your level. And you were criticized even by the president at the time. And things turned out actually pretty well in your state, at least in 2020. 
as you're looking at the Delta surge and you're looking at the reopening of schools this year and the new school year, just talk us through your decision-making process of how you try to balance the public health priorities and interests of the people of Georgia with also other liberties, the economy, the ability of students to thrive in schools. How do you how do you make those decisions? Because they're not easy. No, they're definitely not. And everybody's having to make tough decisions and deal with tough situations. Thankfully, our schools are opening back in Georgia. I visited two already on the first day of class in the last week. Very exciting to see kids in the classroom. That's where they need to be. Uh, We're doing everything in our power to make sure that that continues. But we've had a great working relationship with our school superintendents. Uh, We all went through this last year when we were the first state in the country uh, in many ways with Jefferson City Schools to reopen and get kids back in school uh, after the, you know, hell that we went through in the early days of COVID. And everybody learned a lot, but we got a great team that's communicating and supporting one another. And so we're continuing to do that. Um, I'm also continuing to talk to them you know, every few days to see what's happening on the ground. I mean, there's no doubt that Georgia is experiencing uh, a delta wave like we've seen around the country. And our hospitals, I did a Metro Atlanta hospital CEO call uh, a couple of days ago and got some really good feedback from them. They are extremely busy. They're having staffing issues. Uh, the hospitals are full. The, the interesting thing is the, the news media won't really write about this, but they were full before this wave started with people that had put, you know, procedures off, surgeries off. People are still having, right. you know, unfortunately, heart attacks, you know, um, trauma that we're seeing with the violent crime in Atlanta, a lot of shootings that they're having to deal with. So it's not necessarily our COVID volume is still, you know, not even close to what our peak was. Uh, back during the the holiday season this winter. So we're still in good shape. The staff is spending a lot of money augmenting staffing to help the hospitals, and we're going to continue to to fight through this. But we're also urging people, look, talk to your doctor, talk to your medical professional about getting vaccinated. Ninety-plus percent, 95 percent of the people in the hospital with COVID have not been vaccinated. How can you help persuade people in your state to go get vaccinated? Because I looked at the stats before the interview and Georgia is in the bottom five or bottom 10 in the country in vaccination rate. Roughly around 40 percent of Georgians are fully vaccinated. We know that if people are fully vaccinated, even if they get covid like I did a few weeks ago, it is a very mild case. You are very unlikely to go to the hospital. It's almost certain that you're not going to die. A lot of those really severe complications are among unvaccinated people. You just made that point. But it seems like there are there's still a lot of hesitancy among Georgians. Why is that? And what are you trying to do as a chief executive not to dictate to people or to shame people, but convince people to get the shot? Yeah, good, good question. And, you know, we continue to do a lot of message, you know, constantly on that. I spoke to a big chamber of commerce uh, congressional luncheon yesterday in Columbus, Georgia, and urged them to help us. My full interview with the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also in the free podcast, the entire show on demand, no charge every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, Pandora, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, many, many options there.
When we come back, the home stretch, a viral video out of Cape Cod, and a new food product that we will debate. That's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Tune in tonight on Kennedy. I'll be hosting 8 p.m. Eastern Fox Business Network. This story caught my attention. In fact, I was talking off air about it earlier with Martha McCallum because she and I are buddies when we're both up in Cape Cod. She has a beautiful house up there. My family has a house. And there was a fisherman surf casting off of Nauset Beach, which is the beach that we go to. That's our beach. I mean, not literally ours, but the one that we go to. And he was just, you know, trying to catch some striped bass off of Nauset Beach. And what seems to have happened was he did hook a fish, and then the fish got eaten by a shark. And so then he had a great white shark on the line. And the shark starts thrashing. It's not that far from the beach, and beachgoers around started to gather and— we have audio of it. It's mostly people just gasping and being astonished and using words that we can't air on the radio because it was a great white shark. Our neighbor, my parents' neighbor, was at Nauset Beach at that time, saw this happen. Then eventually, it didn't take that long, the shark was able to spit out the lure and swim off. To me, I would just, I would let the rod and reel go, like just take it. I am not going to try to do battle with this shark. I want no part of this. And someone noted, I think the guy was quoted as saying he was glad it was caught on tape because that's the type of thing no one would probably believe. We had that story recently about a guy who claimed that he was swallowed by a whale. Remember that one? We ever get a follow-up? We get a factor follow-up on that one? I was highly skeptical of that story. In this case, though, there's video. You can find it online. And this is why when I go swimming now up there, I just sort of dip in very, very briefly, very shallow and get out because the great whites are prevalent to the point that a surf caster hooked one at Nauset Beach. I want to shift to an extremely important topic, which is food. It's what we do here on the home stretch quite frequently. And if you listen to our show on the stream and depending on where else you're listening, you may have heard promotional advertisements for something coming up tomorrow. It is the Field of Dreams game featuring the Yankees and the Chicago White Sox. So a Major League Baseball game at the Field of Dreams in the cornfields of Iowa, I believe. Under the light, it's going to be tomorrow night, it's on Fox. So it's kind of a cool thing, a reference to a classic baseball movie, a regular season game that counts in a very unusual setting. I think it's neat. I'll probably tune in for some of it. But it's becoming this big event. And one of the sort of sideshows to the event is the food that might be available. And look, I have been to the Iowa State Fair, so I know that they can get very creative and caloric with food treats in the state of Iowa. The one that I always think back to was deep-fried butter. That was actually something you could buy. A frozen full stick of butter, battered, deep-fried Then they pull it out of the fryer and they glaze it with like this sugar glaze. And I believe there was some powder as well, powdered sugar. I did not try it because that was disgusting to me. I mean, you know, I don't like 
pancakes or waffles or any of that kind of thing. So deep fried butter is basically just that, but even worse for you. So I decided not to avail myself of that particular allegedly delectable treat. But these are the types of things you can get at the Iowa State Fair. Turkey legs, various fritters, deep fried everything, corn, of course. So the celebrity chef Guy Fieri, who has a fantastic first name, I have to say. You know him. He's from Drivers. He's from Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, a show that I enjoy. Although it's funny, he loves every single thing he tastes on that show. He's never like, oh, that's all right. Everything's like, oh, oh, amazing, radical, whoa, awesome. He also has that permanently 1996 look about him. It's like he took all of his fashion and grooming tips and they stopped in 1996. Triple D. I actually like his show. I like him. He's apparently a good guy. He does a lot of philanthropic work. So we are not Guy Fieri haters at all here. But he created, I guess he was commissioned to create an all-American food item for this baseball game. And here he is describing it. Actually, you know what? Before we get to the description, we should play the jingle. I'm a sucker for jingles. I love radio jingles. I have jingles from stations that I've listened to growing up that I still sing from time to time. I love jingles. So he's created a food product, I think, in concert with Chevy. I think Chevy sort of sponsored this idea. Here's the jingle. Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. Yeah, that's okay. That's a callback to an old Chevrolet jingle, apparently. So you got the gist, though. Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie. So it's a baseball game being played tomorrow, and the food is a hot dog apple pie pocket type thing. And I'll let Guy Fieri, in his own inimitable style, describe this thing to you. Listen. So what do you get when the mayor of Flavortown hangs out with the cool kids from Motor City? You get yourself an apple pie hot dog. First, pie crust. Kind of roll that out into a rectangle. And then some bacon jam. Getting your bacon nice and crispy. And then cooking it down with a little brown sugar, a little honey, and apple cider vinegar. Apple pie filling. I imagine you probably have an awesome apple pie filling that your grandma used to make. But if you want to get that canned stuff, it's fine to use in this regular hot dog. I'm going to brush the edges of this with some egg wash. And you're going to have to stretch that top piece because you got to work over the top of that hot dog. Give it a little crimp, raw sugar, a little pie spice on top of that. Pop it in the oven, 350, 18 to 20 minutes. Here's the final steps. 50-50 apple pie filling and yellow mustard. Some crumbled bacon. And there you have it, the apple pie hot dog. You're going to dig it. We got the jingle one more time. Baseball hot dogs, <laughs> apple pie and Chevrolet. <laughs> So I had forgotten, in case you were not clear, the, quote, mayor of Flavortown is himself. Just in case there was any confusion about that. I will say this. He sort of had me all the way up until the very end. So if you are trying to picture this in your mind, because after all, it's radio, let me paint a picture for you. Have you ever gotten an apple pie from McDonald's? Right, it comes in that little cardboard sleeve. It's maybe six inches long, like six by two, something like that. Very hot. 
Got to be careful. You're going to burn the roof of your mouth on that thing. You just blow on it a little bit. And it's got that sort of rich, flaky crust. And then apple-related activities inside. (laughs) They're very sweet. I think they're actually delicious. I haven't had one in years, and now I'm sort of craving one. So picture an apple pie from McDonald's with a hot dog inside it. Sort of, It's like a pig in a blanket just with a full-length hot dog and then this sweet component to it. That's what it looks like. And my initial reaction was, no, thank you. Then I heard him describing it, and I was shall we say, intrigued. My likelihood of wanting to try it was increasing as he spoke with the various ingredients. But then at the end, when he said it's 50-50 on apple pie filling and yellow mustard, the yellow mustard really threw me off. See, because if it was just the apple pie with that bacon jam, that sounded amazing. Like, I will 100% have the apple pie with the bacon jam. I wasn't totally sure about the hot dog being included in there, but just for the sake of the novelty and the baseball connection, fine. But I remember thinking to myself, this may not be that bad, especially if you're not, because we have debated a stupid number of times, condiments for hot dogs. What do you put on a hot dog? I like relish. I like brown mustard. I like ketchup. Sometimes onions, sometimes kraut, but those are my big three. I would not want any of those three things on a hot dog apple pie. I feel like the savoriness is the hot dog. Everything else should be more on the sweet side. You don't need dipping. You do not need mustard, in my opinion. So if the mustard is built into this thing, that makes me less excited about this as an option. Would I try a bite of it, like maybe cut off an end and just try it? For the sake of it, probably. Like, it does not completely repulse me. But I sure would like to try it without the mustard in it. Maybe mustard on the side. You could see, does this taste profile work? But, I mean, he is the mayor of Flavortown. So who am I to question this elected official whose entire expertise, self-described, is flavor? Max, I will come to you first. Yes or no on this thing? Yes, but I don't think I would buy it. If someone offered to pay for it for me, I would say yes. What would you be willing to pay for it? Like what would be a reasonable price for you to try this? $2. $2. You can't even get that for a regular hot dog. Yeah, I know. Originally, I thought this was kind of like a apple pie with hot dog bits in it. Almost like beans and weenies. You remember beans and yeah, weenies as a kid? That seems worse to me. Yeah, but since I saw the shape and how it's kind of prepared, the idea you of would a try McDonald's it. apple pie, I do like that idea more. What about the mustard thing? No. What I thought would be a good idea, though, although I don't personally like apple pie with cheese, but if they put like cheese whiz instead of the or mustard. Or like a little cheddar? Something like that, yeah. Okay. I also wonder if a spicy brown mustard would actually be better than just the yellow mustard. I don't know. Spicy apple pie, though. But hot dog apple pie? We're already in a weird place. <laughs> That's true. Christine, your thoughts? Oh, I'm allowed to ask. I'm allowed to answer this because usually you tell me I'm disqualified from any food talk. No, you're not disqualified. You're just often wrong. Oh, okay. So I have an idea. Let's get rid of the hot dog and put like a sausage in there. I think that would be a good better for the apple pie. I 
don't disagree. And I do think bacon, if you leaned more into the bacon and less into these processed tubular meats, I think I would like it even better as an idea. But that then takes away from the hot dog. I mean, it's in the jingle, Christine. It's a baseball thing. And you have a hot dog at a baseball game. I think that's why you have to have the hot dog in there. Wyatt, I would guess that you're a no because you're a very picky eater. However, hot dog and apple pies are both very basic things. So you combine them. I say there's an off chance you're a yes. I am a yes, uh, mostly because I do like both of these things. And, I mean, does it get any more American than this, apple pie and hot dogs? Oh, like, I mean, in, in fact, and you're, you're forgetting two different things. In fact, let's listen. Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. And a little catchy jingle. That's America, folks. Go Yankees tomorrow. Maybe the bullpen won't melt down in the corn stalks. We'll see. Back here tomorrow on the radio. Kennedy tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, Fox Business Network. I'm Guy Benson. Have a great night. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.